If you enjoy studying the Bible, but have grown frustrated looking for solid content you can trust, welcome to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study each day, five days a week. Every Monday, the team at Get Fed Today posts five hand-selected sermons from a vast catalog of reliable Bible teachers for you to enjoy on your commute, to and from work, during your daily walk or run, or that hour you spend working out. Please note, Get Fed Today only posts content that is already available for free on the internet. Nothing about this ministry is monetized, and a few costs associated with hosting the podcast have been covered by a single benefactor. In fact, Get Fed Today is a volunteer ministry run by a team of Christ followers who love God's Word, enjoy good Bible teaching, and genuinely want to make it as easy as possible for their fellow brothers and sisters to get fed today. All you have to do is subscribe. For quick links to the podcast available on Apple, Google, and Spotify, simply visit GetFedToday.com. And again, that's GetFedToday.com. So please open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, Chapter 20. The Gospel of John, Chapter 20. I want to speak to you about some of the appearances that Jesus made after his resurrection. And I think God really has something to tell us about faith and doubt through these uh, remarkable accounts. Father in heaven, I want to thank you, Lord, for the pleasure and the honor of being here at this pulpit to speak to this congregation. Lord, I, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the way that you can do in each individual life, We expect it now by faith and ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 20, let me read to you verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, our Savior, God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, had a remarkable three-year ministry where he taught like nobody had ever taught. He did acts of love and mercy, miraculous acts like nobody had ever done. He stood for righteousness against corruption and especially religious corruption like nobody had ever done. But you could say that the greatest work that Jesus did before he went to the cross was to pour into the lives of his disciples, the 12, and then there was also a somewhat broader group beyond the 12. But eventually it all culminated in Jesus going to the cross as he had spoken of, as the Old Testament had prophesied, and he completed this great work of being the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. God's sacrifice, the one who would come and be the substitute for sinful and guilty humanity for us. And after he died on the cross, he was buried in a tomb. And after three days in the tomb, he rose from the dead. But when Jesus rose from the dead, discovered there on that Easter Sunday morning, nobody saw the resurrection. No human eye saw it. And when the disciples first found out about it, what they found out was that the tomb was empty. Peter and John ran to the tomb and it was empty, but they had not yet seen the resurrected Jesus. The first ones to see the resurrected Jesus were not his 12 disciples. It was actually some of the faithful women who had been his followers. And by we, as we come to John chapter 20, verse 19, the evening of that first Easter Sunday, 
the disciples had not yet seen the risen Jesus Christ. Now, just before this, Jesus mysteriously and miraculously revealed himself to two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And what the Gospel of Luke tells us, tying it together here with the Gospel of John, is those disciples ran to meet the twelve here in this room. And so they told the disciples, we saw Jesus, but it was just a fleeting glimpse. And then now what happens here in verse 19? When the disciples were all assembled. Now, I just want to make something clear here. By correlating this with the Gospel of Luke, we understand that it was more than just the 12, actually just the 11. And as you find out, you would even say the 10, because one was absent, not only Judas. It was more than just that group that was there. We know that the two who came from Emmaus were there also by correlating with Luke. And Luke also tells us that there were others there with them as well. So this was a somewhat broader group than just the 12 who had normally followed him. It says here in verse 19, that when the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood in the midst. You know, sometimes when we read the Bible, we read it sort of on automatic pilot, and we don't really think about what it says. This is really weird. This doesn't happen. Because the sense of the original language is not that the doors were shut and Jesus climbed through a window. The doors were shut and he just appeared. Like something from a science fiction movie. Like, like being teleported like in Star Trek or something like that. He just appeared right there in the midst. Which, by the way, it tells us something. That Jesus' resurrection body was real. It could be touched. It was material. But apparently it operated according to a different principle when it comes to the physics of the human body. For you and I, we just can't materialize in the midst of a room. We don't have that ability. But apparently Jesus had that ability in his resurrection body. Now what I find so fascinating about that is that the Bible tells us that our resurrection body is after the pattern of Jesus' resurrection body. And I don't know what we're going to have in heaven, but it's going to be amazing. And we're going to be able to do stuff that we can't do here on earth. I'm looking forward to that immensely. Now, Jesus appears in their midst. By the way, I think it's amazing that he did that. I mean, where did Jesus want to be? He wanted to be with his disciples. Listen, he could have gone anywhere. He could have gone on top of Mount Everest. He could have seen the Grand Canyon. He could have done a world tour. But where did Jesus? He wanted to be with his disciples. And when he came, notice what he said there in verse 19. Can you see this scene in his mind, in your mind? He just appears right there in the midst of the disciples. There they are. They're frightened. They're afraid. They're worried that the Roman soldiers might bang on the door at any moment. That, that they rounded up the ringleader and they sent him to the cross. Now they're going for the rest of the followers. They're, they're, their hearts are beating. Jesus appears in the midst. And look what he says right there to them in verse 19. Peace be with you. I give you assuring peace. Reconciling peace. Now listen, I think it's so wonderful to consider that even though these disciples had forsaken Jesus, and let's not sugarcoat it, when Jesus went to the cross... All of these guys abandoned him. Not a single one stepped forward and said, we followed this man for three years. We know him. Let his fate be my fate. 
If you're going to deal with him, I'm his follower. Deal with me the same way. Not a single man had the courage to do that. And yet Jesus comes with no anger, no bitterness, no frustration. He gives them a word of peace. Now look at what he says in verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you as the father has sent me. I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. These were Jesus's first words to his disciples, upon meeting them after his resurrection, the first thing he wanted to do was not done with a word at all. Verse 20 says that he showed them his hands and his side. He gave them the gift of his assurance. Men, I want you to know it's really me. Look at my hands. And what would they see when they looked at his hands? They would see nail pierced hands, would they not? And then he showed them his side. What would they see when they looked at his side? They would see a great gash about the width of a person's hand because that was the width of a Roman spearhead that went into his side just under the rib cage and demonstrated that he was in fact dead. He wanted them, men, it is me. You can be assured I am risen from the dead. I'm here to tell you here this morning, Jesus Christ wants to give you the gift of assurance that he really is risen from the dead. He is. That's your property as a believer. He he didn't come to reveal to them a new idea, a philosophy, a doctrine, a mystery, anything like that. He said, I'm here to reveal myself and I am truly risen from the dead. Then there's a second gift that he had for him. Not only the gift of assurance, he had the gift of peace. Look at verse 21. He says again, peace to you. I think it's remarkable that he said it twice. I think the first one was that none of them would have a heart attack. The second one was that they would really hear that Jesus has come to them with peace. Not anger. Not rebuke. Not, not, oh, where were you guys in my moment of need? Some followers of mine, you were. There's none of that. It's peace to you. And the resurrected Jesus brings peace to us as well. I see a third gift right there in verse 21. He gives them the gift of a mission. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Isn't that a remarkable thing? Now again, I believe Jesus gives us that gift as well. Jesus Christ sends you into the world. You are not randomly thrown into the world as if there's no meaning or purpose in your life. You're not thrown. You're sent by a Savior who loves you. He has sent you into the world for a discernible purpose. And notice, he says, as the Father has sent me, how did the Father send the Son? Think about it. Jesus was not sent uh, as a philosopher, even though he was more brilliant than Plato or Aristotle or Socrates or any of those ancient philosophers. Jesus could have been the greatest philosopher of all time, but he didn't come as a philosopher. The, Jesus didn't come as an inventor or a discoverer, even though he was more brilliant than anybody else. I mean, I don't know if the smartphone is a blessing or a curse for us, but Jesus could have invented it back then. Would have had time getting a cell signal back then, but he could have invented it. 
But Jesus said, no, I come not as a philosopher, not as an inventor, not as a conqueror. I come to serve and to sacrifice and to lay my life down. And Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, that's how I send you. Then look, he gives him a fourth gift. Look at there in verse 22. What does he do? He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we need the Holy Spirit filling and active in our life. And I want you to understand something. Jesus breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. There's something interesting about the vocabulary of ancient Hebrew and biblical Greek. In both of those languages, the same word for spirit is also used for wind and breath. It's the same word. So when Jesus breathed on them and gave them the spirit, it was a very conscious action of saying, the same Holy Spirit that filled my life, I give upon you. The same Holy Spirit I depended on in the humiliation of my humanity to see God's work done, I bestow that upon you. And friends, what a beautiful and powerful thing that is. Look, sometimes I look at great men that God has used in this world. I look at men like Billy Graham. I look at men like uh, Pastor Chuck Smith. I look at men in church history, great missionaries like Hudson Taylor, great preachers like Charles Spurgeon. And I think, you know what? That there's no way that I could measure up to what those men do. But you know what? I can say this. The same Holy Spirit that filled them fills me and fills you. Isn't that a wonderful thought? And so we need to receive the Holy Spirit and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus also gave them the gift of pronouncing forgiveness when he says in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. That's not the power to grant forgiveness, but the power to pronounce forgiveness. Now, all of that is sort of introductory because what I really want to get into is here in verse 24. Let's pay attention to this. Now, Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we've seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's a pretty stubborn statement there, isn't it? Now, verse 24 tells us that of the 12 disciples, we know that one was not there with them. Who's the one that was not with them? Obviously, Judas. Judas, who had betrayed the Lord and Savior. And in a shameful act of cowardice, did not turn to the Lord in repentance, but rather killed himself. Judas was not there. Now, we also learn from verse 24 that Thomas was not there. We're not told why Thomas was not there. Could have been anything. Maybe he had a stomachache. Maybe his wife had an obligation for him. I, I don't know. Maybe there's a good football game on. We don't know. Thomas was not there. And you've got to say, Thomas missed out. W- wouldn't it have been wonderful for Thomas to be there and receive those things? To have Jesus breathe upon him and say, receive the Holy Spirit? To have Jesus give him peace? All those things. Thomas missed out on it. But you can imagine the excitement of the disciples uh, we're not told when they, this happened. Maybe it was the same night. Maybe it was the next day. But, but the, the, the excitement of the disciples in coming to Thomas saying, Thomas, th- th- this is the most wonderful thing ever. 
Let us tell you what happened to us last night. Verse 25 says, we have seen the Lord. We've seen him. He really is risen. And we, the men you've been with, with the last three years, we've seen the Lord. And what was Thomas's response? Look at it carefully in verse 25. Thomas has such a radical response. He says, listen, unless, I want you to notice, he makes three demands. Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails. The first thing I got to see is I got to see the print, the, the, the uh, nail wound in his hand. And then he says, secondly, unless I put my finger until the print of the nails. In other words, it's not enough for me to see it. I got to touch it and know that it's real. And then he says, I'm going to add a third demand on top of that. The third demand, I've got to put my hand into the wound that was in his side, which is gross, but extreme. Seeing is not enough for me to believe. Touching once is not enough for me to believe. I've got to touch those wounds twice and see them or what? Notice his statement. It's very strong there at the end of verse 25. I will not believe. You know what I find amazing about that? Thomas refused to believe the testimony of many witnesses and reliable witnesses. I so wish I could have been a fly on the wall in the middle of this conversation. Because I'm sure there was much more of it to than this. You know, Thomas says this, and then Peter or John says back, whoa, whoa, Thomas, don't you know who we are? We've lived with you for the last three years. We're brothers. We're comrades. We've seen it all. Do you think we're deceived? Do you think we're lying to you? Every one of us, all ten of us are giving you exactly the same testimony. Thomas, you can believe us. Maybe you don't believe somebody else. Maybe this report came to you from some of the outside you might not believe. But Thomas, you can believe us. And Thomas looks at every one of them the square in the eye and says, I don't believe you. I have to see it for myself. Thomas not only rejected the reliable testimony of eyewitnesses, but he demanded to see and touch for himself. And he says with great strength, he says, unless my demands are met, I will not believe. Brothers and sisters, you've got to admit, that's pretty hardened unbelief, don't you think? Now, I want to be as generous to Thomas as I can be. Because I'm probably going to meet this guy in heaven, and I don't want him to be sore that I spoke bad of him. I want to be as generous to Thomas as I can be and say that maybe his unbelief was rooted in shock. Maybe there's something like this to Thomas. Inside of him deeply, he says, listen, I've seen men crucified. You don't walk away from that. I've seen what they do to a man putting him up on the cross. This, this isn't a superficial wound. Maybe there's something to, to shock about it. But I'll tell you what, I, I do agree, though, with the assessment of the old commentator Adam Clark about Thomas's unbelief here. I like what he called it. He called Thomas's unbelief unreasonable, obstinate, prejudiced, presumptuous, and insolent. That's a pretty good description there of Thomas's unbelief. Now, let me say two good things about Thomas. Number one, 
Thomas was steadfast in his unbelief, but he still wanted to be around those who believed. Look, um, there's a lot of people here this morning. And I don't say this because I have any supernatural knowledge, but just because of the law of numbers. There's probably some people here today, you are unbelieving or you're very much struggling with belief. Let me say, you are welcome here and I'm glad you're here. You are welcome among those who believe. And it says something good about you that even though you're struggling with belief, you're here right here in the midst of people who do believe. And I'll tell you something else that's admirable about Thomas is not only was he still willing to be around those who believed, but he honestly spoke his unbelief. He was honest about it. Hey, I don't believe it. I would much rather have a man or a woman be honest about their unbelief than to sort of hide it in their heart and keep it as a secret condition that can never be spoken to, that can never be prayed for, that can never be appealed. Listen, if you're struggling with it, talk to somebody about it. It's okay. Follow the example of Thomas. This was admirable about his unbelief. Listen, I want you to know that Jesus loved Thomas so much, he was going to do something about this. Look at it here now in verse 26. And after eight days, now let me just say this, but by their method of reckoning days, they would count the present day as well. So what this means is on the following Sunday. Jesus appeared to him first back in verse 19 on Sunday evening, the Sunday of the resurrection. This is on the following Sunday. Okay, back to verse 26. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Okay, so do you have the scene in your mind? I often tell people that when you read the Bible, it should be like a movie running in your head. Do you have the movie in your head here? Here they are in the same room a week later, and it's good, they're together. They haven't seen much of the resurrected Jesus, but they know he's risen from the dead. And so it's a completely different tone, it's a completely different tenor than how they were gathered together Sunday night the week before. There they are, I don't know, there's more worship, there's more praise, there's still mystery. They don't know exactly what Jesus is doing and what he wants them to do, but they're gathered together on that Sunday night, and then boom, verse 26 tells us that Jesus stood in their midst again, just like he did before. The doors were shut, and he miraculously appeared right there in their midst again. And, and I don't know, if I was there, my first thought would have been, this is amazing, you're going to do this every Sunday night? This is great. <laughs> he comes right there in their midst, and he says the same thing, peace to you. And then he turns to Thomas, verse 27. Now, sometimes I, I know that there's the Bible that God gives us. But sometimes I have an alternate view of the Bible in my mind, kind of a make-believe Bible about how things could have been if, if God was more like me and we're thanking the Lord that he's not more like me. Okay, in the strange alternate make-believe Bible, the next verse, verse 27, would read something like this. He said to Thomas, do you believe me now? How about this? 
But you know, he does nothing of the sort, doesn't he? Thomas was so obstinate and stubborn in his unbelief, yet Jesus came to him with such love, such grace. He says, listen, Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Now, the most amazing thing about that, which must have hit Thomas, just like a freight train coming at him, is instantly, what did he know? He knew Jesus heard me when I said that. When I made that utterly unreasonable demand, Jesus was not present bodily. He didn't have some kind of listening device. I wasn't bugged. But because he's God, he knew exactly what I said. I can just imagine Thomas turning white as a sheet when Jesus repeats his own words back to him. Oh, Lord, I'm starting to believe already. And then Jesus gives him this amazing invitation. Now, don't you wish that you could see these scenes in the Bible with your own eye? Look, I can't prove it. I have no biblical justification for this. But I have to believe that there's going to be a great big video library in heaven where we can go back and see these scenes. And look, it'll all be super HD and on demand and all the rest of it. It won't be like the old days where you had to check the videotape out or anything like that. No, it'll all be be sweet. But I just have to believe because you know what I want to see? I want to see the expression on Jesus' face when he said this to Thomas. Now, you and I, we, we know it wasn't anger. He didn't speak these words. It wasn't reach your finger here and look at my hands, you know, holding his hand right in front of his face. No, there's such a warmth and a love about this. It's that Jesus is so directly dealing with Thomas's unbelief. He's rebuking Thomas's unbelief, but he's doing it with such love that you hardly know it's a rebuke. Come on, Thomas. Here we go. I can give you assurance Look at my wounds. Now, I'm going to say more about this, but I don't want this point to be forgotten. Brothers and sisters, when you want assurance, look at the wounds of Jesus. Look at what he did for you on the cross. I want you to understand that God can give you no greater demonstration of his love for you than what Jesus did on the cross. He can give you fresh demonstrations of it, but no greater demonstration. He has demonstrated it in the greatest way once and for all by what God the Son did in laying down his life as a perfect, a complete sacrifice, bearing all our sin, all our shame, all our guilt, all our dishonor, bearing it all at the cross. That is the greatest demonstration of God's love. And when you want assurance, don't say, okay, God, if you answer this prayer for me, then I know you love me. No, when you want assurance, you look back to the wounds of Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. And God will give you the assurance that he loves you. But Then notice how Jesus said it. He said, come, Thomas, do it. Put your hands here, touch these things, see them. And then he says at the end of verse 27, do not be unbelieving, but believing. 
Brothers and sisters, it is true that in the Christian life, there are times when we struggle with doubt. But there is a dangerous tendency in the world today, and I don't think it's anything particularly new. Maybe it's a little stronger today than it has been in the past. There's a dangerous tendency in the Christian church today to romanticize doubt, to act as if doubt is something wonderful. Some people even say doubt is preferred. That's what we want to do. We, we, we shouldn't be so certain as Christians. We, we need to cherish and, and that our doubts. Listen, I want you to know something. You can tell from this account that if you have doubt and come to Jesus, Jesus will deal lovingly with your doubts. But make no mistake about it. This is the word of Jesus to you. Look at it right there in verse 27. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus is not here to celebrate your doubts and confirm you in your doubts. He's here to lovingly persuade you by his wounds that you can trust in him and put away all doubt. I think it's fascinating that Jesus essentially called Thomas here an unbeliever. He believed Jesus existed, but he didn't fully believe in Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, look at verse 28. All right, before verse 28, I got a question for you. You don't have to raise a hand or give any response. It's all right. But I just want you to determine in your mind here. Did Thomas actually touch the wounds of Jesus? Jesus invited him to. You might even say Jesus told him to do it. Come on, here, come on, Thomas, do it. I think it's an interesting question. Did Thomas actually touch those wounds? Now, I, I don't know if there's an absolute right or answer. I lean one way or the other, and I'm going to tell you in a few minutes. I lean. But isn't that an interesting question? Did Thomas actually do what Jesus invited him to do? Now, verse 28. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Thomas made an immediate transition from declared unbelief to radical faith. He went from doubt to faith in a moment. And I'm here to tell you, you can make the same transition. Sometimes we think, well, it's going to take me years to work through these doubts. doesn't have to be that way. You put your focus on Jesus Christ now. You look to his wounds. You receive the reliable testimony of Jesus' disciples. And you know he is risen from the dead. You can move from doubt to faith right now in a moment. That's what Thomas did. Matter of fact, not only did Thomas move to faith, he moved to radical faith. You could say that this is the highest declaration from merely human lips that says who Jesus is in the Gospel of John. You don't find anything higher than this. I mean, John the Baptist said that he was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. But Peter said that he was the, uh, the Messiah, the Son of God. All those things are true and wonderful. But Thomas looked at him and he said, My Lord and my God. Now you could say 
that before Thomas lagged behind the other disciples in faith, now he runs ahead of them and says, my Lord and my God. And by the way, that's what you have to be able to say as well. It is not enough for you to know that Jesus is Lord and is God. You have to be able to say, my Lord and my God. And look at Jesus' response right there in verse 28. Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. By the way, this is what leads me to speculate that Thomas never did touch the wounds of Jesus. Because Jesus said, because you've seen, he didn't exactly say, because you've seen and touched. He says, because you've seen, you have believed. But notice what he says next in verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. I want you to notice something. Jesus gives a blessing to everybody who believes in his resurrection, in his completed work on the cross, without actually seeing it. Now, I want to be very clear on something. Jesus doesn't call us to believe something without thinking. He doesn't call us to believe something on blind faith. He's not telling you to take a leap of faith in the dark and just believe for the sake of belief. No, Thomas's error was in not believing the reliable eyewitness testimony of those who had seen the risen Jesus Christ. He had true and valid reason to believe, and he wouldn't accept it. I'm here to tell you, God gives you true and valid reason to believe. You and I will not touch the wounds of Jesus. You and I will not see them with our physical eye, not on this side of eternity. But what we have is the same thing that should have been good enough for Thomas. It should have been good enough for Thomas to have the reliable eyewitness testimony of those who had seen and knew that Jesus rose from the dead. Brothers and sisters, this is not something that you need to be in any doubt about. But to say with true confidence, my Lord and my God. Now, I I can't neglect these last two verses of the chapter because they are so amazing. Look at it here in verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus said a lot more than what's included in his gospel. But God's desire is that you would believe as he has given you reason to believe. And that by doing so, what would you have? You would have life in his name. Can I just speak one more moment about this idea of the romanticizing of doubt? If you are struggling with doubt here in your walk with God, maybe it's because of some theological controversy. Maybe it's because of some eloquent skeptic who's come to you. Maybe it's because it's just the spirit of the age that surrounds you. Maybe it's because of some life-shaking crisis that has come into your life. And you're doubting. You're struggling with faith. I I want to repeat this idea. God does not despise you. He speaks to you in love. 
He cares about you. He wants you to remain among his people, even if you struggle with doubt. But God comes to you right now and he says, life for you, life in his name is not found in the doubts. It's found in the faith. So we don't despise anyone who has a season of struggle with their faith but we don't romanticize this condition of doubt. Rather, we look again to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And we say, Jesus, I believe you are my Lord and my God. You see, this belief, this faith, it isn't complicated. It isn't always easy, but it's not complicated. You could say that it's as simple as A, B, C. Accept, believe, And commit. That's what Thomas did. My Lord and my God. I pray Jesus Christ would move each and every one of us into a more joyful, confident belief and faith in who he is and what he's done for us. Father, that's my prayer, both for myself and for this congregation. Lord, we need this. And Lord, specifically, I pray... For any among us who have been struggling with doubt, Lord, maybe they have been completely silent to any other human about their doubts, but they have struggled. And Lord God, I pray that you would give them, Lord, the persuasive evidence that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, did what the Bible says he did, and will do what he promises to do. Fill our lives with this, Lord God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor David Guzik. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor David's teaching ministry by visiting EnduringWord.com.